Hello, and welcome to the Modern Retail Rundown. I'm your host, senior reporter, Gabby Barco, and I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Kale Guthrie-Weissman. Hello, Kale. Hey, how's it going, Gabby? It's great. Every week, we break down the biggest headlines in the retail world. Today, we have some major ground to cover, starting with the latest update on Silicon Valley Bank, then TikTok potentially facing yet another ban from the U.S. government, And finally, we'll get into fast fashion's resale ambitions in light of the news of ThreadUp and H&M's partnership. So, of course, the biggest headline of the week continues to be SVB. Let's talk a little bit about the latest in the saga, Kale. Uh, On Friday, actually just a few hours ago, as we speak, uh, SVB announced it's filing for Chapter 11, bankruptcy protection. This is the latest after a week of a lot of announcements and shuffling around and people taking out their money and all of that. So yeah, where do you think we'll where do you think we'll be by Monday? I don't I don't want to make any predictions, but yeah, I don't know. It was actually I was thinking about us last Friday when the SVB news first mm-hmm. hit and you and I had a conversation like, should we talk about it? And I was like, I don't think we know enough. For to talk about it, and I feel like we've lived a lifetime since then. Like I have lived so many <laughs> lives. Yes. Um. the The chapter eleven thing is interesting, and I, it's very confusing. And I was trying to make sure I understood it, but it does not include the actual bank, and it's more other arms like the investment arm. But and so it's not necessarily surprising. It's pretty much them trying to find a seller for these other arms that aren't t- haven't been taken control of by FDIC but um it's still an important an important part because it means that it's essentially going to go to a fire sale. It seems like a sale was what a lot of people were hoping for just because it's one of those situations where it would help save a lot of operations and just uh you know of course protect the economy potentially which was a big fear from the last few days, but we should probably talk a little bit about our industry and how, you know, what we've seen from the past few days. Uh, I think right now, maybe the biggest topic is, I know I've spoken to founders who said, okay, this, you know, wasn't as bad as we expected, but now I have to figure out who do I trust with my money next? Um, of course, SVB had a huge role in the way a lot of e-commerce and retail startups operated because, uh, a lot of venture capitalists tend to go with it. And so, yeah, what are your thoughts on um, what this will mean next? I mean, I, th- I think it's an interesting, it'll definitely have an impact on the types of financial institutions companies opt to work with. The fact that, you know, SVB clearly wasn't the biggest bank, but it was one that was highly regarded. And it uh, and a lot of people chose to do banking with them Uh specifically because they were known as very startup friendly and that's how they presented themselves. And so the fact that they ultimately uh, went kaput probably means that in the future, you know, startups that are trying to figure out where to put their money will want to put it in a place that they view as more secure. One of, you know, the big three, you know, it just definitely will have a chilling effect on the types of financial decisions that these companies make going forward. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the biggest impact. Uh, there's some stuff you could talk about with the the investing arm, which this chapter one, or excuse me, this chapter eleven part will ha- will play a big role in. You know, if someone does buy it, will it be able to rise and become what it was before? Who knows? But really, the big issue is 
a lot of companies wanted to work with a bank like SVB kind of for like the cultural cachet, for lack of a better mm. term. Like it was, it, they were known as very startup friendly. They held a lot of events. They did a lot of things. They, they had a lot of concierge like services that were trying to be very friendly to these up and coming uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, and it worked for a long time. It was a, a really successful bank. It, people, from what I understand, really liked working with them. But then uh, then all this happened. And so no. I imagine they'll be like, no, we're going to go with Chase now, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or City or J.P. Morgan or, yeah, it's like what's old is new again. I think the biggest thing for me personally is just wrapping your head around how much cash is involved in this. Um I was reading in the information that the venture arm that we were just talking about is around $9.5 billion and includes, you know, some of the biggest firms, Andreessen, Sequoia. So I'm not sure, you know, of course, we don't know yet, but it seems like maybe we'll be seeing the trickle effect from this, uh, at least within fundraising, maybe, or venture capital in the next few months, because that's already a volatile space right now. Yeah, already. Funding is not what it was six months or a year ago. And so the fact that all of these firms that had their money in this bank, I mean, they're, you know, there there are a lot of different things at play, but I imagine that it's going to put a damper on things, at least in the short term. Yeah. So I think with that said, we'll definitely be keeping an eye out and checking what will be happening, at least from the e-commerce and retail side of things. And I'm sure we'll get more headlines by Monday. I know. It never ends. Speaking of headline making, we should probably talk about TikTok, right? TikTok is constantly pushing and pulling with the U.S. government. Uh, Just, you know, I feel like for as long as they've been popular, this has been happening. They are now facing a forced sale from uh, the feds that are basically trying to break it up because uh, due to security reasons. I think it's interesting that, I don't, I don't know about you, maybe you understand this more, but I, it, it always seemed very vague. Like, okay, yes, it's a Chinese-owned company and citizens' data is at risk, but I don't think they've ever really broken down what exactly is at risk, which is actually what TikTok said in a statement. Um, so yeah, what do you what do you think this back and forth is? Yeah, it's like? very interesting. And like, What's funny is the only from I might be speaking slightly incorrectly here, but the only real like uh, like meaty thing that we know that happened that gave some people pause, I think, was from last summer or the summer before. I should check exactly what year it was, but it was there was a BuzzFeed news article that they found documents that uh, that pretty much said all of TikTok's traffic was going back into China. And so the Chinese Mm -hmm. parent company could see everything. And then as soon as that hit. TikTok said, oh, uh, well, we'll work with Oracle and now now it'll all be in the U.S. on U.S.-based servers. And so TikTok did respond to that and change it from what we know. We don't know the extent. And so I, I'm as far as I'm aware, I'm not I don't know if there's like a new thing that the the government is is going after or has learned. But either way, it seems like it's been one specific gripe, which is that probably I don't think a majority of the United States citizens, but a lot of United States citizens are using this app and likely that data is going into um, a company in some form that is owned mm-hmm. by the Chinese government, you know, but I I don't know. It's like a, 
it it does seem very vague and it does seem very draconian the way that the the Biden administration is going about it now and it it's has like it seems exactly the same way that the Trump administration was going about it kind of funnily mm-hmm. enough which Biden then nixed an executive order from Trump when he went into office so it it's sort of it feels like deja vu in a certain sense like and i i constantly feel the question why now like what what has happened that that has changed mm-hmm. from before right and i think for me the safest thing is like yes maybe they know things that are under wraps that we don't know about but um i think tiktok made an interesting point which is that a new ownership won't really change a lot of these concerns which I think it's kind of interesting is, you know, they kind of seem to be preparing for the next wave of criticism uh, with that statement to me. Um, But one thing I'm thinking about with like I was going through when preparing for this and I completely forgot about the entire pun intended TikTok of like with the Trump fight. Do you remember all that where it was Mm -hmm. Trump gave an executive order you have to sell? Then it was maybe Microsoft and that fell through. Then it was maybe Oracle that fell through. And so, but that was, you know, in 2020, that was three years ago, two and a half years ago, TikTok was big then, but not as big as it is now. And so what would the price tag or like, I imagine it would be such a bigger task now that TikTok is so much more ubiquitous than it was two and a half years ago. So I just don't even know who the buyer would be or who, you know. You're right. I mean, I think at this point, TikTok, and I I do really want to talk about this, it's such a big behemoth in the world of marketing that we talk yeah. about. And, you know, look, of course, every brand under the sun is using it now to di- diversify away from meta, which is, you know, the the hottest new strategy of the past couple of years. And so with that said, I mean, I, I can't even imagine what you do from there. It just seems like a whack-a-mole situation. Every time you find a new channel, you know, it's taken away or it's uh, it's just not working anymore. Exactly. And it was really interesting to watch brands. And this is, you know, going back a few years. But I remember, you know, when TikTok was big with the younger crowd and had a sizable audience, brands would say like, you know, we're watching it, but we're not going to go into it. And no one really thought it would be as big of a marketing channel as it has become. And it's now for for many brands become kind of table stakes in a way where, you know, people are on that. It's a way to diversify, as you said, away from meta. Um, and so it's really interesting that <laughs> like the the moment that a lot of, you know, brands found a new channel that wasn't the the duopoly, uh, now that is in question. If we think about whether or not this is going to be successful with the Biden administration, that will still take a long time. So brands have certainly some runway to post some TikTok content. But uh, <laughs> one thing I I would be interested to know is just are they how are they thinking about this? Are they going to you know take their foot off the gas uh, mm-hmm. with their TikTok strategies? I'm guessing probably not, but I don't I don't know. Yes, if you're a brand, please reach out to us. And tell yeah. us what you think. Um, just a shameless request here. Um, yeah, I think I think you're right. And um, it, it's interesting that, yeah, when you said that TikTok, even as late as 2020, I remember writing about the bigger, you know, non-startup-y hip uh, companies, like, you know, your gaps, like those types of companies were like, oh, yeah, you know, it's it, it would be fun, you know, to kind of maybe gauge organic content from there. But now that TikTok has also simultaneously built out their advertising arm, which just, I feel like, quickly grew overnight, 
it's just become an official channel, I feel like, in the last year or so. So with that said, uh, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, will people go back to Meta potentially or will they move to Pinterest? I mean, what is what even is uh, the hottest? I don't think there's really anything beyond TikTok. It's hard to imagine, right? But I'm yeah, sure there I will mean, be something. I, everyone just says we use all channels now. So it's not like, you know, if we were talking in 20, I don't know, 2016, 2017, be like, of course, we're on Instagram. Um, you know, that's the hot channel. Mm -hmm. Everyone's trying to figure out the best way to hedge their bets. And so I don't know. I, I feel like they would just be like, this is another difficult thing we have to deal with as marketers. We'll figure <laughs> it out. Uh, I don't think they'd be like, well, we're going all in on Pinterest now, but may maybe who mm -hmm. knows? Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a lot of um, just nimble type of pivoting constantly in this space. Yeah. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Next, I want to talk a little bit about resale and fast fashion. This is space I've covered pretty extensively, um, especially since, you know, consignment and resale has really taken off in the last few years, especially um, first party, you know, in-house brands doing it. And so this past week, ThreadUp, which is one of the biggest, uh, you know, they call themselves resale as a service platform, struck a partnership with H&M, which I thought was really interesting because as somebody who you know monitors the kind of brands they they list on their website, H and M is actually one of the few that up until now they they did not accept from uh, sellers. And so now that there's an official partnership, it kind of puts you know a fast fashion brand on the same level as Gap or Madewell, which uh, you know have really big partnerships with ThreadUp, which kind of just made me think about the unit economics of it. I mean, I think, you know, it's one thing to resale a, a designer bag or even like a Patagonia jacket. But, you know, when you're talking about 10 to $20 items, is it really worth it? And I, I yeah, I do really want to see where this goes because it just seems kind of very outside of the scope of what consignment started out as. I would love to get an inside look of how the thread up or, you know, any of those bigger resale backend platforms work specifically with those types of products, because that's the most opaque space. And so, you know, does it, is it actually economically viable to accept a $10 shirt and then resell it for however as much when you have to go through so many processing parts of the, the system? I don't know. It's a, it's a really interesting question, but I wanted to yeah. bring up one one really interesting thing that I am sort of obsessed with whenever we talk about ThreadUp is that for the last six months, I think, you know, for at least the last, you know, little less than a year, ThreadUp has been doing very, very specific marketing campaigns that are aimed at fast fashion. And the aim is to differentiate it from Shein and make it look like an, an e-commerce platform that that is more sustainable, blah, 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 that kind of thing. But also it has in its marketing, called itself anti-fast fashion. And so the, the mm -hmm. fact that it's now partnering with many different fast fashion retailers, I find super interesting because it kind of, you know, it, it was, its marketing was pretty much saying, don't, don't buy from H&M. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're, you're doing something to hurt the world, but now it's accepting clothes from H&M. So I think it's really, you know, it makes sense why it happened, but it also, with the marketing put together, I don't know. It's a kind of a mixed message, if you ask me. 
yeah, it's almost like there was a warning sign there. Yeah, I think just as far as, far as the operation goes, uh, I, you know, I think the authentication process uh, I've always found really fascinating because I just can't imagine opening a bag, uh, getting all of these heavily maybe used uh, soiled uh, fast fashion pieces that maybe aren't up to par and then having to still, you know, authenticate everything, uh, document, photograph. I mean, these authenticators really go through a lot. And this is actually something that ThreadUp talks a lot about on earnings, which is trying to streamline that side of things because it is really costly to, to run a consignment operation like that way. And so, you know, obviously partnering directly with the brand helps with that because you're relying less on, you know, single consigners uh, that are coming in uh, and which actually have created a huge backlog. But with that said, uh, yeah, and so they they do rely really heavily on the B2B side of things to grow. And they talked a lot about the last week when I was listening in on uh, their international ambitions to kind of help with that. But, you know, at the end of the day, they lost $92.3 million in 2022. And a lot of that is of course, there's marketing costs in there, but I think just the actual consignment part of it is is a lot more expensive than people realize. Yeah, and I want to know, like, given that they have all these brand partnerships, and I'm I, the way I understand these brand partnerships is they 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 manifest in different ways, but a lot of them are just that. If you can get like with this brand, you, if you have their products, you can put it into a thread up bag and maybe drop it off at the store or mail it in, and like they, they'll they'll accept those products. And so, how how much product or you know inventory is thread up sitting on? And like as it continues to grow, this B two B part that includes accepting products from these brands. Is it able to scale up the logistical infrastructure in order to do that, which includes authentication, which includes reverse logistics, which includes, you know, putting it back on the marketplace? I don't know. It seems like I would I would just love to know how that part is being scaled up because that seems like the most capital intensive parts of it. And I I've I've I don't know how how it's working out. Yeah. Right. And at the same time, they um they're really seeking out profitability. I know this is groundbreaking for startups yeah. to say this year. <laughs> I feel like I keep writing that sentence uh, every few days. I mean, th this is the year of profitability because <laughs> they can't get growth anymore. So, and, but mm -hmm. like also ThreadUp, I think that those resale platforms have been in a profitability country for years and we could go, you know, the real real is having similar problems and it has been um, public longer than ThreadUp and it too has been working towards a path to profitability for as as long as I can remember. And so I think, you know, this is both a sign of the times, but also what these, these companies that rely on very expensive, invisible back-end infrastructures in order to succeed uh, have to say that they're doing. Well, with that said, that's all we have for you this week. Don't forget to rate and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us. It really helps us out a lot. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Modern Retail Podcast to hear interviews with industry leaders that drops every Thursday. And of course, come back Saturday mornings for the Modern Retail Rundown. Kale, do you want to tell us a little bit about the next episode? Maybe who you'll have on? Sure. I talk with Emily Esner, who is the Chief Marketing Officer of Saks. So we talked about all things luxury and e-commerce and 
what it's like to spin off uh, a digital brand or a digital platform, I guess you could say, from a well-known brick and mortar like Saks Fifth Avenue. It was a fun conversation. Looking forward to that. Great. Well, until next time, 